Genesis chapter 25, and let's begin reading in verse number 21. Genesis chapter 25, verse number 21. The Bible says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. After that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage. And Esau came from the field. And he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. For I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Lord, I pray that you would use the preaching this morning. I pray that it would speak to hearts. Lord, I pray that your perfect will would be accomplished in each of us. We've come here today with joy in our hearts, Lord. We're looking forward to a good day of, of church family fellowship. But Lord, let us not, as we look forward to those enjoyable moments, miss this very, very serious moment that you have for us now as you seek to do a work in us that would please you. Lord, if there's any that are lost, show them that reality. And Lord, I pray that you'd woo them unto yourself. Lord, any that are discouraged, encourage them haughty that they'd be abased. But Lord, that every heart's need would be met dispense from your hand in such a way that we would see your providential purpose in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 25, we are introduced to a set of twin boys by the name of Jacob and Esau. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know that both of these names will loom large upon the pages of Scripture. Uh, You know that Esau would go on, and there's even a hint at this uh, down in verse 30, to be the father of the Edomites in the Bible. And these were uh, sort of uh, distant cousins, so to speak, the children of Israel. They often stood at opposition with the children of Israel. There were long years of wars betwixt them. And in fact, whenever the Babylonians finally came in and took captive the southern tribes, the Edomites were present there to try to hand their brethren, the Israelites, over to the enemy. If you study the Old Testament book of Obadiah. It concerns God's judgment upon Edom as a people for that fact. And by the way, the Edomites have been eradicated. They don't walk the earth today. You say, preacher, why is that? Well, you ought not set yourself against the Lord. Amen. 
Uh, you should expect if you set yourself against God and you know God's going to win because He's God, that you're going to lose. Amen? And uh, so we're introduced to these two men. Jacob, of course, would be one in a line of patriarchs beginning uh, with uh, his grandfather Abraham and would extend down to the Messiah himself. Jacob is a very interesting character in Scripture. Tom would fail us to say all we wish we could say about him. But it's interesting because when you, when you open the book of Genesis... It starts with a family. It starts with Adam and Eve. And then it sort of zooms out to take in the scope of all humanity. And then very quickly it zooms right back in on a family and an individual. And then from that place it begins to show us how that family developed into a nation that today we call the nation of Israel. But when we read about these two men, they were very, very different individuals. They had different interests, different inclinations. They had different demeanors and dispositions. And something you'll find is a common tool in the Bible. I hate to use the term literary tool, although that is what it is. But I don't mean that to suggest it's not historical fact. But as God casts these truths before us, you'll find a common literary tool, and that is that of contrast. God will often compare and contrast two groups of people or two individuals or two situations that He might throw into stark relief certain truths that are illustrated concerning them. And such is the life of Jacob and Esau. We're told about their conception. We're told about their time in the womb. We're told about their birth. And we're told about their young years. In our passage before us, we are given really just one story about these two men when they were who we would consider to be young men. And it centers around this event of the selling of the birthright. I'm not a big theme preacher. I've never been any good at it. But I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, the snare of savory soup. You sure you can handle that this morning? Boy, let me tell you, I've had bad soup in my life, but I don't guess I've ever had a bowl that's ruined my life the way that Esau did that day. Esau's entire life is defined and shaped by this one bowl of soup. Now, I, uh, listen, I, 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 we got some good cooks in here, and you're probably like to eat some stuff today that's going to absolutely just blow your mind. I don't know if it'll be life-changing, amen? But this man and this moment of time, and you know, I thought about this as we were sitting ready getting to worship this morning, how beautiful is the literary pen of God that he in many ways uses this historical factual truth and reality of this transaction over a bowl of soup. But in that bowl of soup, a lot more than just a bowl of soup. Doesn't it represent the lusts and desires of man? Doesn't it remind us of the desires and impulses and motions of the flesh? You see, when I read this passage of Scripture, I'm not just reading about a man that came in hungry from the field and was willing to sell his standing in the family for a bowl of soup. What I really see set before me is a truth concerning your life and my life and how we relate to God and the choices that we make daily. You see, in many ways, when I read about Esau... I see that though he was a historical individual, though he was a a factual individual that lived in a moment of time, he is also representative of something about the human condition. When we're introduced to Esau in our text, we learn three things immediately about him. Notice what it says in verse number 20. The Bible says the children struggled together within her, within Rebekah. In other words, they fought and twisted and tossed and turned there in the womb, quarreling with each other. 
And she said, and by the way, I, I can't, I can't pass this without making comment of it, but every, every born again New Testament believer that both still has an old flesh and still has a new man in their life, every New Testament believer that still struggles with the fallen Adamite nature, but also has the indwelling Spirit of God, has through the ages asked this same question, if it be so, why am I thus? If I'm God's child, why is there this struggle? If I'm, if I'm part of God's plan, why is there this struggle? And Rebecca asks, you know, Lord, you gave me these children. And if it be so, if this is what you want for me, she says, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. That wasn't just it. She said, two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Can I say to you this morning, the first thing we learn about Esau was that he was a contentious man. Evidently, he was somebody that walked large. He was somebody who filled up a room when he stepped into it. And we find that even in their much later years, Jacob retained a certain caution and uneasiness and fear of his older brother Esau. He was a man, Esau was, who would seek to take things by his own will, by the force of his personality. He would fight for whatever he desired. He would quarrel. He would fuss. He would argue. He was a contentious individual. Say, preacher, that's good and everything, but what does that have to do with me? Well, it reminds me of a certain truth that you and I have to deal with. You know, every born-again believer, we still have that old flesh, but we also have the Spirit of God within us. And when you got saved, the struggle didn't end. In many ways, the struggle began. Because as a lost individual, you knew only to do that which appealed to and appeased your flesh. But when you got saved, now you have a choice that you have to make. And I will tell you this, and there's been many a Christian that has struggled with this reality. They thought that the Christian life would be easy, and they found whenever they got saved that all of a sudden things that didn't bother them now bothered them. All of a sudden, things that they didn't want to do before, they wanted to do now. And now things they used to want to do bother them and they can't do it the way that they used to be able to. And it reminds me of this truth that Paul gives us in Galatians 5.17. He says this, For the flesh... And he's talking about that part of mankind that's natural. The world has all sorts of terminology for that. We'll talk about gut instinct and intuition and what's natural to individuals. They'll talk about following your heart or following your dreams or following your feelings or whatever it is. And all that is just secular code words for the flesh. For the flesh. That which operates independently of God. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. In other words, Paul says, I know that sometimes the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know that sometimes you know what is right to do, you desire to do what is right, but you find there's this conflict within you. He'd describe his own personal struggle in Romans seven eighteen. He would say this, for I know that in me, Paul's saying this, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Can I just pause there and say this? The flesh cannot be sanctified. The flesh has to be mortified. The flesh is not going to be... Hey, listen, when you got born again, that don't mean you didn't have a desire to do wrong. You still have a desire to do wrong. And, and, and listen, woe be unto you if you deny that reality. 
All you're doing is putting blinders on yourself and living in a fantasy world. If you think getting born again meant you was never going to be tempted, never going to desire to do things that were wrong. Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing any better about your flesh today than there was uh, whenever you walked the earth a lost man. Your flesh is just as rotten today as it was then. Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And then he describes what that produces. He says, for to will... To will what? To will to do the right thing. For to will is present with me. He says, I want to. He says, it ain't that my want to's broken. I, I want to do what's right. But he says, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. That's interesting. I don't think Paul's saying I don't know how to do good. He's saying, though I know how to do good, I find myself not doing good. Because he goes on to say in verse 19, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, Paul makes it abundantly clear later on. He's not talking about split personalities. He's not talking about something beyond his control. He says, with my mind, I serve the law of God. But he's recognizing that every single born-again individual has a struggle that exists within them. When I read about Esau, I'll tell you this way. He reminds me of the flesh. He was a fleshly man who lived in fleshly ways, who desired fleshly things. And just like your flesh, he is contentious. You ever have a day you just wish the flesh would leave you alone? Man, I have days like that all the time, but he's always there. Every day that I wake up, he's present there seeking to take dominion. The, uh, the, the flesh is contentious. Esau, he was a contentious man. But then look at verse 24. I'm going to have to walk lightly with this, but I think I can explain it right. The Bible says, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Aren't you thankful for an ultrasound? Somebody say amen to that. She didn't get found out till that. The Bible says in verse 25, And the first came out red, all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau, which means red. Let me say it this way. Esau was not only contentious, Esau was corrupt. Now listen, last thing I want to do is make a bunch of gingers mad this morning. Somebody say amen to that. Red-headed people, hey, listen, I'm on your side, all right? But there is a reason that the Bible makes note of this fact. It was an unusual thing. They did not anticipate, they did not expect, they did not think possible that they would have a child that would look like Esau. And they took note of it because it was abnormal, or we could use this terminology, gently so towards our red-headed brethren, corrupt. In other words, he didn't look like the other kids looked. He didn't behave like the other kids behaved. He behaved in a way that was not in keeping with what they anticipated and what they expected. Can I tell you something? Hey, listen, this old flesh that we walk in, that's not what God wanted for us originally. God didn't create us in that condition. I understand. I don't think Adam dwelled in what we would call perfection. I don't think he he lacked the ability to do wrong. Obviously, he could do wrong. He chose to do wrong. But he certainly lived in innocence. And until the conscience was activated within him by disobedience, he merely just lived in blissful ignorance of the possibilities that were there before him. And that's really, I mean, listen, we got something better in Christ than than Adam ever had. But let me just say, it's not God's desire that we live subjugated to the flesh. That's not what God wants for us. You say, but preacher, it's natural. I know, we've got to be supernatural. You say, but preacher, it's normal. Hey, it may be normal. There's a lot of things that's normal that ought not be present in our lives. 
So I see that Esau, he was contentious like the flesh. He was corrupt like the flesh. But then notice a final thing, verse 27. The Bible says this, And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, let me preface it with this comment. There's nothing wrong with being a hunter. Amen? There's nothing wrong with dwelling in the field. And God's not making these statements and comparing these two boys because the the actual act of how they spent their time was somehow better or worse than the other one. But the things we learn about Esau later on in his life are in keeping with a very illustrative expression that is being presented here, which is simply this. Esau was a man that wanted to drive his tent stakes deep, that wanted to robe him, wrap himself in this world, that sought to and depended upon the world for his sustenance, for his provision, for his pleasure, whereas Jacob was a man who dwelled in tents. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are viewed as tent-dwelling people. God didn't for a lot of years let them settle down and build houses. Why? Because He wanted them to understand that they were pilgrims and sojourners. That they were looking for a city whose builder and whose maker is God. That they were not tied and tethered to this world that they were living in. And when we read about Esau, he was a man that was that was planted deep in this world. And we find that to be true not only just in this simple fact about his hobbies, but rather in the entire explanation of his demeanor throughout the rest of Scripture. He was a man that was invested in this world. Let me say it this way. Not only was he corrupt, but he was carnal. Now, what does it mean to be carnal? Well, it means to be earthly minded. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 about our lost condition. It says, when we were lost, we, we lived amongst the world, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Can I tell you, the flesh is only interested with that which is temporal, that which is pleasurable, and that which is self-serving. That's part of the reason this world is so broken as it is today. Everybody's looking out for them and theirs and how they can live life pleasurably to the fullest with nary a thought to an eternity that they're getting ready to step into. To be spiritually minded, Paul said, is death. But uh, or to, or to be carnally minded is death. To be earthly minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace in, in Christ Jesus. Can I say this? The flesh always minds the things of the flesh. The flesh may have moments where it, it, it seems to project a notion of nobility, but at the end of the day, you dig deep enough, there's always some self-serving interest at its very heart. The flesh is always, hey, listen, the flesh is never going to get you to serve God. Not in the right way. The flesh ain't never going to get you to pray. The flesh ain't never going to get you to witness. The flesh ain't never going to get you to read your Bible with the right spirit and the right attitude. You're going to have to make a choice in your life as to who you're going to feed. When we come to our passage this morning, we find that Esau had a choice to make. And we find that God lays before us these two individuals. And what we learn is that on this day, Esau got fed. Can I tell you, in your life, every day you make a choice as to whether that old man or that new man is going to get fed. The danger is not in the fact that he ate a bowl of soup. (laughs) Thank God. Amen. Or else we're all about to be in trouble. The danger is in the fact that the old man was fed that day. 
How does that happen in our lives? Can I be transparent with you for a moment this morning? Hey, listen, there's days that I feed the old man and not the new man. And there's nary a day I wake up that I don't desire for the new man to be always in control. I know it's right. I desire for it to be so. But like Paul, what I would, that I do not. And what I would not, that I do. How does that happen in our life? Some people would have us to yield to a fatalistic or deterministic attitude. Like, well, it's just inevitable. You're going to have good days and bad days. And while I do recognize that due to the infirmity of the flesh, no man is going to live in perfection. You or me or anyone else is going to live in sinlessness and perfection. We should not, because of that truth, yield ourselves to this attitude of, well, there's just some days I'm going to mess up. Listen, there's going to be enough days you mess up trying your dead level best not to mess up that you don't need to give it any help by just picking days to not try. Every day of your life, you ought to recognize the dangers that set before you. I want you to notice four thoughts, and we'll be done this morning, about how this took place in his life. And I think this instructs how this takes place in your life and in my life. Number one this morning, I want you to notice the bowl that he sought. The Bible says in verse 29, and Jacob sawed pottage. I don't know if I've ever had pottage before or not. If I have, it's never been called that. Amen? If somebody made pottage today, point it out, I'll eat a spoon of it. So the next time I'm preaching back this way in Scripture, I can say I've eaten pottage. But I do know enough about my Bible to know that it's speaking about a stew that he was making. The Bible later on calls it a a pottage of lentils. It was some sort of of soup and stew that was being made. But you know, that's really not the instructive thing about verse 29. It's not just that Jacob made pottage. It's that Esau came from the field and he was faint. Notice with me the faintness of his state. So, preacher, why is that interesting? And I and I, I hope you can do a little bit of following along here with me for a moment. Jacob's not an evil man. He's not a perfect man either. And certainly one could draw an application here of Jacob as the spiritual man and of Esau as the natural man. But can I for just a moment put Jacob in the driver's seat of, of carrying out the will of the devil? Because he's certainly doing that in our passage. And I'm not saying that he was indwelled or possessed. I'm not saying he was energized, activated, or controlled. But certainly it was in the devil's interest to see Esau tripped up in his walk with God. Can I just say it this way? The amazing thing is not that Jacob sawed pottage, because the devil's always cooking something. We think sometimes that we fall and fail because things got particularly bad. But can I tell you, the devil always brings his A-game. He's always cooking something. The thing that changed here is not that Jacob sawed pottage. It was that Esau was faint. Can I tell you the times in your life that we allow ourselves to grow spiritually faint? Man, there's so much in this. The Bible says he came from the field. You know, in your Bible, the field is a picture of the world. That's what Christ said in the parable of the sower and the seed in the New Testament. He said the field is the world. Can I tell you, you've been spending time out in the world. You've been spending time around the world's crowd. You've been spending time doing the world's things. Don't be surprised when the devil's soup smells good to you. Don't be surprised if you hang around that crowd, if you do the things they do, if you spend time going where they're going, if you come in spiritually anemic, depleted, and faint. Don't be surprised when the devil pounces on that. Man, there's a lot that we say just happened to us that we did a lot of things to make sure it could happen to us before it happened to us. 
You, you follow with me? Get out your Dr. Seuss book so you can follow preacher. There's a lot of things that we say just happened to us that we did a lot of things to help get in a state where it could happen to us before it ever happened to us. And we come to this passage and say, oh, that mean old Jacob, he's sodden pottage. I don't know that Jacob knew that Esau was coming through the door, but he was just cooking something because that's what Jacob did. He hung out in the tent all day and cooked something. It was Esau that came in faint from where he had been out hunting. You will have moments of faintness in your life. I understand that. I'm talking about spiritual faintness. I'm not talking about fleshly weakness. I'm not talking about physical health. But I'm talking about you will have times of spiritual faintness in your life. But recognize that the more that you're out in the world, the more that you're around that crowd, the more you are situating yourself for a moment of failure. I see the faintness of his state. But then notice number two, the flavor of the soup. Now, I don't know. I say, I told you I've never eaten pottage. Never one time. I stay away from lentils best as I can. Um, uh, generally, most ve- the only vegetable I like is chicken. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, so I'm not a big vegetable person necessarily. I can't tell you everything about it, but I do want you to notice something. The Bible says this. Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Now, there's an interesting thing going on here. The name Esau, and even by extension, the name Edom implies this, contains within it the idea of something that is red. The Bible tells us this pottage was red. You say, preacher, why was it red? Because of all the hot sauce in it. Amen? If you study it closely, you'll find it was all the crystals hot sauce that had turned it red. But uh, (laughs) isn't it interesting that he was appealed to by that which was of his very nature. You ever heard the statement, you are what you eat? That's not true. <laughs> I, I ain't even got nothing funny to say after that. Y'all are laughing. I don't even know what. But I do think spiritually this is true. Hey, listen, what you are will be what you lust after. Can I tell you this? I I don't think that Jacob was setting Esau up on this day. Maybe he was. Later on, he would do that very thing in robbing from him the blessing. I don't know that that's what Jacob was doing this day, but I also don't think it was a coincidence that the very thing he was cooking up happened to be the very thing that Esau was most interested in. Hey, listen, the devil, he's a smart scoundrel. He knows what appeals to you. There are certain things that he could wave right in your face that you would yawn at. And then other things that because for some reason you have an affinity for it, they are a particular weakness. And can I tell you, you can't expect he's going to give you a break, that he's going to play fair, that he's going to pull his punches. He will always come at you with that which appeals to you the very most. Part of the reason, man, it takes humility. God giveth grace unto the humble. You know, when Peter says that, he's talking about resisting the devil and him fleeing from you. Part of the reason we make ourselves such prey for the devil is we're too prideful to admit that we have weaknesses in the first place. We're too busy trying to pretend like we're superhero Christians to admit that there are certain things that we are vulnerable to and prone to. And all the while that we're pretending like we have no weaknesses, the devil is exploiting those weaknesses at every turn. Man, it was no accident. I see the bowl that he sought. Number two, I want you to see the blindness that he showed. Now, undoubtedly, uh, he had many times walked by Jacob preparing some meal and was uninterested in it. Undoubtedly, he had come from the field faint on many occasions and not made this mistake. So why in this moment 
Does he not only partake in this meal, but he sells that which he owned that was the most value. What he sold that day was the most precious thing that he owned at that time. He didn't own anything more valuable than that birthright. And he sold it that day. How did that happen? Well, the Bible says in verse 31, Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. Now, let me pause and explain what a birthright is. A birthright would have been, we would consider it, the inheritance of the firstborn upon the death of the father. But it was more than just an inheritance. It was not an equal portion. It was, in fact, a double portion. Now, you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, if you've got the whole pie, they would first take that whole pie and give two portions to the oldest. And then whatever was left over, that would then be dispensed amongst the others. So that he would not just have a little more than everyone else, he would have the vast majority more than everyone else. Part of the reason for this is he was taking on the duty as patriarch of the family. And it would then be his responsibility to see to all the needs of the family. But you know, it went beyond for this family merely the inheritance. It also involved what we would call the, well, I'll just alliterate it this way. It had to do with prosperity, but it also had to do with the priesthood. Remember that at this time there is no Levitical priesthood. The the law has not been given on Sinai. And because of that, the priest would be whoever was the patriarch of the family. You find this the reason Job offered sacrifices for his children. He wasn't trying to have a relationship with God by proxy for them. It was his responsibility as the patriarch of the family to intercede on their behalf. Just as Israel as a nation had a high priest, so likewise a family had a priest and it was in this age the patriarch but not only did it have to do with the patriarch uh, but but and the priesthood it also had to do with this big word you ready the progenitorship you say preacher what is that well remember there were certain promises for this family and one of the promises was this that the messiah would come through them but they immediately ran into a problem they started having more than one son And so the family tree would begin to branch and split and go different directions. And the question had to be asked, okay, which branch will produce the Messiah? Well, God's promises were tied distinctly to the firstborn of that family. And so whenever he sells this birthright, he's not just selling something of temporal value, but something of great spiritual and eternal value as well. Here's the problem. He couldn't see that. He was blind to the spiritual realities of the transaction that he was making. You know why Christians take occasion in the flesh? Because whether permanently, perpetually, or even just temporarily, they are blinded to the spiritual cost of what they're doing. Can I tell you why I sometimes give occasion to the flesh? It's because I'm being blind to the spiritual cost of what I'm doing. Can I tell you why you sometimes give occasion to the flesh? It's because you have blinded yourself to the spiritual cost of what you're doing. When I see this blindness, it it, it involves two things. One, I see the temporal value he discarded. He says an interesting thing, verse 32, and, and I hear this almost every Sunday. Behold, I am at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? Sounds like a Baptist, don't he? Preacher. You better hurry up. We're, we're like to die back here. I mean, Wayne ate in four hours. Amen. And here's what he's saying. I don't think, I, and you can disagree with this, I guess, if you want. I, I don't think he was getting ready to die. 
I mean, medically speaking, the human body can go 40 plus days, typically speaking, without food. And I don't think he was getting ready to die, but here's what he did. He told himself whatever lie he had to tell himself to excuse the action he was taking in the moment. You've probably never committed a sin that you haven't first convinced yourself was as vital to you as the air you breathe. You always tell yourself, I cannot live without this. You know why you tell yourself that? You know why I tell myself that? Because it's the only way we can salve our conscience. It's the only way that we can quiet our spirit long enough to engage in something we know is wrong. I see the temporal value that he discarded. And here's what he said. It ain't going to do me a lot of good if I die. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to do this. We always somehow situate ourselves in equally as desperate a situation as Esau has put himself into. But can I tell you this? There's a bigger problem here. You say, preacher, what if he had died? Would have been better than that he had sold his birthright. I'm going to say that again. But preacher, what if he had died? Would have been better than if he had sold his birthright. I remember, this This will be galvanized in my mind the rest of my life, I guess. I remember hearing the governor of New York in the middle of, of, the, of COVID, he made this statement. He said they were talking about the skyrocketing levels of domestic abuse and child abuse and things that were taking place in the uh, season of lockdowns. And But he made this statement. He said, people will die if we don't do these lockdowns. Now, we've come to realize actually the lockdowns killed a lot of people. That's okay. I'm going to say it again. We've come to realize the lockdowns killed a lot of people, not to mention irreparably damaging the developmental uh, processes of our kids and a lot of other things as well. But he, he made this statement. He said, they're dying. He said, it's death. He said, there's nothing worse than death. And, and he didn't just say it in passing. He emphasized it because they pressed him. They said, well, but yeah, but there's, there's domestic abusers are beating on women and children and different things. He said, it's death. He said, there's nothing worse than death. Death is the worst thing there is. And that really stuck in my mind when I heard him say that because I thought to myself, here is the commentary of a thoroughgoingly secular man. This is a man that believes he will die and his consciousness will cease and he will just turn into dirt and never exist in any sense whatsoever afterwards. And so for him, death is not just death. Death is silence. Death is darkness. Death is obliteration and annihilation. And so he's saying there's nothing worse than death. Can I tell you, child of God, hey, listen, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Our life is not situated to try to run from the life to come, but to step into it in the perfect plan, providence, and will and purpose of God. The truth is there are a lot worse things that can happen to you than death. Now you say, preacher, I don't know what this has to do with Jacob and Esau. Well, let me tell you what it has to do. In order for you to deny the pottage, you're going to have to mortify self. And your flesh don't want to go quietly. And your flesh will scream in your soul. But it's death. The worst thing you can do is deny me. The worst thing you can do is mortify me. But can I tell you, that new man will speak up in those moments and say, there's worse things than mortifying the flesh. I tell you, man, there's worse things. Hey, listen, guilt before God is worse than mortifying the flesh. I'm not, I'm not, if you think I'm still talking about physical death, you've missed it. I'm talking about mortifying self. I'm talking about setting self to the side, denying self, refusing the pottage. There are worse things than that your flesh is not sated by some wicked activity. 
But in that moment, you'll convince yourself that that's all there is, is this sin and this opportunity. I see the temporal value he discarded, but then I see the eternal value he disregarded. He never even talked about what all it meant. And it's amazing. When we, when we are in the moment of temptation, we don't want to talk about the cost. But there's always a cost. I see the blindness that he showed. Then I want you to notice the bargain that he struck. This is interesting. Verse 33 says this, And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Here this life-altering deal, bargain, is struck between these two men. And I want you to notice, number one, what was required in this bargain. He said, You have to give up what is most precious to you to gain what is only merely passing comfort relief and pleasure. Every sin we commit is that identical bargain. We're giving up the most precious things of our life. I'm glad when a person gets born again, they can't lose their salvation. I'm, I am eternally secure in eternal security. I'm settled, man. I'm sorry. We, 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 we can argue about something, but I'm settled. I've read too much Bible to believe that God will jerk a man's salvation away from him. We're kept in his hand. We're kept by the power of God under the day of redemption. We're sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, I just, we could keep talking about verses that make it abundantly clear that a person is eternally saved. But I'll tell you this, next to your salvation, and maybe even we shouldn't say next to, because it is certainly an extension of and an outgrowth of your salvation, is the walk with Christ that you have daily. It's the most precious thing you have. And rarely do we value it the way that it ought to be valued. Rarely do we appraise it as highly as it's truly worth. But when we allow ourselves to yield to the flesh, what we're doing is taking all that progress, all that potential, all that opportunity, all of that fellowship, all of that nourishment, and throwing away for just a moment of pleasure. I, I, I see this. There's always something required in the bargain. I've gotten, you know, hmm, how do I say this right? Nothing's free. Only communists that are trying to kill you and steal your life believe things are free. Nothing in life is free. We are grappling with this as a society to now. Uh, t- today, uh, b- because we have been conditioned to believe ever since the late 1800s that things can be free. And that's not true. Nothing is free. There's a cost associated with everything. Now, there can be gifts wherein somebody else has paid a price so that you can have it. And it is what we would call free to you. And so when politicians say this is free, what they really mean is it is free to you. It is not free to other people that pay their taxes. It is not free to the generations that come. It, it, it is not free to those who, whose bank accounts are already being pilfered and robbed and uh, right now. But, but, but they say it's free to you. And it has led us to believe that somehow there's this mystical, magical transaction that exists in the universe where you can get something without it costing you something. But the truth is, every transaction that takes place, this is what we're really starting to come to terms with in, as, as regards privacy in our society today. Because we thought they were just like, hey, you want an email account? And we're like, sure. And how much does it cost? And they're like, it's free. That's a lie. 
it's not free. What they really mean by it's free is we're going to take all your information and sell it to advertising agencies and government alphabet agencies and things like that and, and you know, give it away to various foreign governments and things. But, but we thought it was free. And it's caused us to believe that there's this mystical transaction. But can I tell you this? That con is a long game that's been played for a long time. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, the devil has come along to mankind and said, you can do this and there'll be no consequences. There is always a cost. Your kids might pay it. Your spouse might pay it. Your church might pay it. Your friends might pay it. Your parents might pay it. But somebody's going to pay a cost in the bargain. There's always something required. I see what's required in this bargain. But then I want you to notice what's revealed in this bargain. Verse 34 says this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. You know why? Because bread ought to be free, amen? But it's not, sadly, just like anything else. <laughs> he gave him bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Now, what do you think Esau did? What do you think Esau in his mind, how do you think he viewed that transaction? I think he probably looked at it like I came in hungry as a bear, felt like I was getting ready to die, looked at my brother, said, what you cooking over there? And he said, I'm cooking soup of beans or lentils or something. And he said, well, sure, I'd take that and, and, and I'll do anything for it. And he said, give me your birthright. Said, sure, I'm not using it. Here, you can have my birthright. And that, that would all, that'd be all that it was. But what does the Holy Ghost say that Esau had done? Thus Esau despised his birthright. You don't always get to frame the narrative around your actions. You don't always get to set the terms upon which anybody around you, but especially God in heaven, interprets what you do. He probably thought what he did was a slight thing. God looked at it and said he has despised his birthright. No amount of excuses can erase the reality of the choices that we make. I was talking to my wife this morning, and we somehow got to talking about excuses, excuses that people make. And, uh, you know, I, I made a comment. I said, well, that's a silly excuse. And I stopped and thought to myself, the term silly excuse is a silly statement. Because if it wasn't silly, it wouldn't be an excuse. Amen? Oh, that's okay. That hurt me too when I said it. So I get how you're feeling. If it wasn't silly, it'd be a reason, legitimately so, and not simply an excuse. But all excuses are silly. Our silly excuses are not going to change the reality around the choices that we make. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I, listen, I'm not trying to be sharp-toothed towards you. I'm just telling you the truth. Whatever excuses we make, it doesn't change the reality of our actions. I see what was revealed here, which was this, in his heart of hearts, you know why he sold that birthright? Well, why does any man sell a thing? Because he values what he'll get more than what he's got. And can I tell you, every time you and I strike this bargain in our own choices, in our own decision space, every time we do that, we're really saying, I value what the devil's got more than what God gave me. Mmm, that hurts right here. Because that's me a lot of times. I'm saying, Lord, you've given me life and life abundant. You've given me the Spirit of God to indwell me. You've given me your presence to walk with me, your word to instruct me, the prayer closet to comfort me. You've given me all these things, but I'd rather have that fleeting moment of pleasure than any of those things. Oh, preacher, you're being harsh. God said he despised his birthright. 
Mm, I see the bargain that he struck. And then you thought we was done because we came to the end of the chapter. Fooled you. Let me... Let me just notice one final thing and I'm done. Soup don't go bad, all right? I want you to notice the blessing that he surrendered. Esau is mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned in a very familiar passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter number 12. And though there's a greater context to all of it, can I just notice a couple passing statements about the tragedy of this man's life? How this one bowl of soup changed everything for the trajectory of his life. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 12. Paul's warning them about walking in the grace of God. He says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I see not only the bowl that he sought and the blindness that he showed and the bargain he struck, but notice the blessing that he surrendered. Can I tell you something? Not only will it always cost you something, it'll always cost you more than you think you're paying. Uh, there's a great deal of times in life where we sign up for something or we participate in something, there's a cost associated, and then we have what we call hidden fees. Hidden fees are a company's way of saying stealing from you because you did business with us in the first place. That's what hidden fees are. Can I tell you, sin always has hidden fees. Hidden fees in the fine print. Things you didn't even know you were selling when you sold what you sold in the first place. And when we read about his life, we notice a couple things. Notice, number one, what he loved in life. I don't know that this bowl of soup defined who Esau was. Maybe it was symptomatic of who Esau was. Maybe it really doesn't matter whether the chicken or the egg came first. All that matters is that this man lived a life that the Bible calls profane. That's an interesting term, profane. We think of that term in the context of profanity, right? Somebody using barnyard language, gutter language. But the word profane merely means something that is not sacred. Or hallowed. We would use this term today, secular. Secular. What do we mean when we say secular? Something not religious, not spiritual, not hallowed, not sacred, outside the scope of those things. And when the Bible calls him a profane man, it means he was a secular man. He was secularly minded in the way he lived his life. And can I tell you this? You start striking these bargains, you won't grow closer to Christ you'll drift further from him. Walk up and down the streets of this city, Knoxville, Tennessee, knock on doors and meet hundreds of people who claim they were born again at vacation Bible schools, at church camps, at youth rallies that haven't set foot in the door of a church in 25 years. You're telling me all those people are lost? I don't think so. I think a good many of them are saved. But what happened? Somewhere along the line, they went for the bowl of soup. And then the next one was a little easier to go for. And then the one after that. And then the one after that. And before long, they forgot they ever even had a birthright. They're completely uninterested in the things of God. I see what he loved in life, but then notice what he lost in life. The tragedy is not... God is not just up in heaven scandalized by our disobedience. He is grieved and broken hearted as a father over his children at seeing us sell so cheaply 
the most precious things bought at the price of the very blood of Christ. To see us exchanging a life as, as a joint heir with Jesus Christ, to roll in the gutter in the far country. It breaks the heart of God. And when we read about Esau, the great tragedy of his life is not just the birthright, but it said he lost a lot more than the birthright. The Bible says, verse 17, you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. We want to lay that thing at, at Jacob's feet. And certainly Jacob and, 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 and Rebekah went to great lengths to secure the blessing later on for Isaac or for Jacob. But can I tell you this? God could have circumvented their plans. God permitted that to happen. He didn't get the blessing because he sold the birthright. You sell the birthright, you're going to miss the blessing. Amen. The blessing was a lot more precious than the birthright. It extended beyond just merely the temporal lineage to the Messiah. It dealt with the spiritual blessings of God that related to Christ, not just as Messiah over Israel, but as Savior of the world. And he missed those things. Why did he miss them? Well, he didn't know he was giving up that much. Later on, he is outraged. He is he's, he, he's furious. He, he, he is bloodthirsty when he learns that Jacob has stolen the blessing. Something happened between that moment and then that caused him to value the blessing. But here's what the Bible means when it says there was no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. It doesn't mean he couldn't get right with God. You know what the term repent means, right? 180 degree turn. It means he couldn't turn that thing around. There are some things you do and they are done. You can't undo them. I, listen, I know we want to talk about how he can give back what the grasshoppers eat and what the canker worms eat. And I'm glad, man, God can do that. And God certainly, some of y'all could testify that God has given you back things in life that you know you didn't deserve to get back because you squandered them in the first place. Amen. And praise His holy name for the fact that He does that. But I'd be doing a disservice to you this morning if I didn't just tell you, hey, there are some things you don't undo. There are some things you don't get back. There are some times you can't put the grain back in the top of the hourglass. There are some things that you do and they do not go away. And what it means is not that God wouldn't forgive him. Of course God would forgive him. But no matter how much God forgave him, had God stolen that blessing back from Jacob, he would have been going back on his own word to Jacob. So there was nothing could be done about it. I'll tell you this. No telling the things we lose when we reach for that soup spoon. No telling the things we sell when we sell cheaply our birthright. You're giving up more than you think you're giving up. You're giving up more than you're comfortable giving up. And you're giving up things that you don't even know are a possibility from where you stand. I'll tell you this, it was just a bowl of soup after all. But what a difference it made in life. You know what you're telling yourself? Oh, it's just a little sin. What difference will it make? Could make the difference in your kids. Could make the difference in your marriage. Could make the difference in your testimony. Could make the difference in your relationship to your church family. Oh, preacher, you're being overdramatic. No, you're underselling it. You're doing that to tell yourself, to convince yourself. Truth is, oh, it's just a bowl of soup. Boy, I bet he would give anything if he had chose the salad that day. Amen. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I've done my preaching. I'm not going to preach in the invitation. I'm just going to tell you this. If God's spoken to your heart, there's a reason. 
And so don't neglect that. Meet him in this altar. And whatever that matter is that he dealt with you about, don't diminish it. Don't dismiss it. Don't treat it like it's unimportant. Instead, take that thing to God. Bring it before him. Lay it before his throne. Ask his forgiveness. Ask his wisdom. Ask his guidance. Ask his governance over whatever that matter is. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. I pray that it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.